Hey, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Father, we just thank you that we can gather around uh, the word, gather around you, Jesus. Our desire is just to be taught by you. We're coming back to the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I, I just pray, God, um, that we'd be like those crowds that sat around you and heard you teach and were astonished by your authority, astonished by your teaching, and our desire, Jesus, is to be taught by you today. And so, Father, we pray that you would just give us ears to hear, that you'd give us eyes to see, that you would open up our hearts to see the wonderful things that are in your law. We pray that your spirit would uh, just provide unction and power and application for our lives today, that you would speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we come back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to wrap it up here today, and um, this is... The constitution of the kingdom. Murray's been away for three weeks and he's thinking, what? Still on the Sermon on the Mount? And uh, uh, this is the, the, the kingdom manifesto and we start off here with one of the passages of scripture that I would say is probably the most misquoted piece of scripture ever pulled out of the Bible. And it says this, verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not... That you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Judge not that you not be judged is the words of Jesus here. I'm sure you've had someone quote that verse for you. <laughs> if there's one, one Bible verse that, that people outside of, of faith might know, this might be the one right here, isn't it? And uh, I'm, I'm sure you've had somebody quote it to you. It is... I think the most frequently misused and misapplied piece of scripture from the Bible. The word translated judge here actually means this. It means to judge from the place of condemnation or to judge in condemnation. Jesus is, is certainly uh, not saying this as he says this, that it's wrong to unfavorably judge someone. We need to, we need to consider this verse and consider what Jesus says here. In, in light of what the scripture says everywhere else. The scripture tells us to abstain from evil. The scripture tells us not to believe every spirit. The scripture tells us to test the spirits and to see if they're from God. The scripture tells us that many false prophets have gone into the world to deceive. See, careful discrimination, careful judgment, careful discernment is an important part of living as a Christian, isn't it? It's an important part of Christian life. There is a need to judge. But what Jesus is saying is this, is that we are not to be in the place where we are a condemner of other people. Uh, we are not to foster a, a critical spirit towards others. You remember the night that 
Jesus gathered the disciples in the upper room and he washed their feet. They came into the room. They had been out in the world, amongst the world. Their feet were dusty and they were dirty. And as they came into the room, Jesus didn't go, Oh, your feet, they stink, the smell, the dust, the dirt. No, what did Jesus do? He got down, he put a towel around his waist, and he washed their filthy feet. Wrapped himself in that towel and he washed their feet. And see, we are to make judgments not from the place of condemnation. Oh, your feet stink. But from the place where we're to discern and to make a judgment of identification. We are to judge for the purpose of loving discipline and to restore people. Because we love someone and we care about them, we want to speak into their lives with a heart of love when we see them going in the wrong direction. Jesus made a judgment. Dirty feet. They need to be washed. And I, I would say a good rule of practice is this, is that I, I don't have the right to point out dirty feet unless I'm ready to get down on my knees and wash them and help those with dirty feet. And, and, and so... We can make judgment. What Jesus is warning here is not making judgments from a wrong direction, from the heart of condemnation. See, he says this, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, the warning is this, you reap what you sow. In your judgments with other people, you will reap what you sow. If you foster a critical spirit, a condemning spirit, a, a condemning heart, against others, well, guess what will likely come back and bite you one day in life? I mean, we can expect to be judged and condemned by others in the same way that we judge and condemn others. I think of a story from uh, Judges chapter 1. As the, the Jewish conquest of the land of Canaan was happening, they caught one of the Canaanite kings who had been on the run. The scripture says that his name was Adonai Bezek. And when they captured him, they cut off his thumbs and his toes, which seems really odd. I think, wow, that's really cruel. Like, why would you do that? Except that Adonai Bezek said this when they did this to him. He said, 70 kings with their big toes and thumbs cut off used to pick up scraps from underneath my table. And as I have done, God has repaid me. So the warning of Jesus is this. If you, if you chop someone up... If you cut them down in judgment, the way you judge is the way that you will be judged. He says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, there is... Nothing Christ-like about having a critical condemning spirit against other people. People, You know, typically, the heart that does that is, is one of two things, I would say. It, it, often it's immaturity or it's, or it's this desire to make your, yourself look good in your own eyes. It's interesting that the splinter and the log come from the same thing. It, it, it's, it's the same material. It's wood. The, the splinter that I see in someone else's eye is the same material of the log that's in my own eye. And the truth is, is we often point out sins in the, in the lives of other people that we ourselves are guilty of. 
that are in our own lives. That's why we can easily spot it. You know, there, there's a, have you heard, ever heard that old saying or the old truth that, that you can always tell the preacher's sin by the things he preaches against? <laughs> we love to point out splinters in others' eyes when there's a log in our own. And what Jesus is driving home here is the need for self-examination, self-judgment. If we don't face up and own our own sins and confess them before the Lord, then, then we certainly won't be able to see clearly to help others. You know, it's the Pharisee who looks at the sins of others but won't look in the mirror at their own lives, who won't look into their own eyes and see their own sins. I remember uh, about... About three days before Lisa and I got married, I was working on a, a construction job on the North Shore in Vancouver, and um, I was working away, and over my head like this, and poof, the hunk of wood dropped into my eye. Oh, the worst one I've ever had. You ever had a splinter in your eye? Brutal. And uh, by the end of the day, I fought through it, and by the end of the day, my eye was pretty much swollen shut, and a couple days before our wedding, I, I was staying with Lisa's brother at his place, and that night I went to bed, I was just dying, and in the middle of the night, this thing just flushed itself right out of my eye, but I woke up, and my eye was scratched and a mess. I thought, oh no, I'm ruined for wedding pictures. <laughs> I'm ruined anyways for wedding pictures. But uh, I went to the doctor to have my eye examined. Boy, you don't, you don't let someone go into your, your eye is so sensitive. It's so hard to touch your eye as it is, let alone to have someone else go in there. Eyes are sensitive, and removing a splinter. You, you don't want anybody going in there to remove a splinter that has a log in their own eye. They can't see straight, let alone what they're going to do to your eye. And the power of removing a splinter in another is, is not the ability to detect that there's a splinter. Oh, look, I can see it. You know, I can expose it. I can condemn it. The power comes in a, in a Christ-like love that, that, fills, that can fill our heart with the desire to help someone else who, has a, has, who needs that help. And so we're, we're to take the attitude of inviting God. Deal with me, God. <laughs> deal with my heart. Take that heart of self-examination and, and self-judgment and invite the Lord to deal with us so that we can then lovingly deal with other people and help them. Then Jesus says something interesting here. We're not to judge others with a critical condemning spirit, but next Jesus says this. Verse 6, do not, give, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Just because Jesus tells us that we're not to be criticizers, to be condemners, to be critical, doesn't mean that we're to be gullible. This is the flip side of the coin. We need to have a discerning spirit. We need to judge between that which is true and that which is false. We're the Lord's sheep. But that doesn't mean that we let other people pull the wool over our eyes. See, according to Old Testament law, both dogs and pigs are condemned as unclean animals. You know, we have a dog, a little seven and a half pound monster. Some of you guys know Molly. We know dogs and their hygiene behaviors. One time we had Molly in the car with us and she's kind of the lap dog and bouncing around and I was looking out the window and I turned and as I turned she just tongued me right in the mouth <laughs> and, and I didn't want to think about where her tongue had been prior to that 
see, dogs are unclean. They'll eat anything. We know that about them. They'll even eat their own vomit. Pigs are openly unclean. They're the animal that is like not ashamed of its filth. You haven't bathed lately. I know I've been wallowing in the mud. Wallowing in the mire. And in comparison uh, to dogs and pigs, that is the character that some people have. Unclean natures. See, God's people are compared to sheep rather than dog, dogs, you know, compared to doves rather than pigs. And to be effective, we, we, have, to, we have to make judgments. And Jesus says this, we're, we're not to entrust spiritual, holy, precious things, pearls, valuable things into the hands of those who are revealed to us to be, you know, unbelieving, apostate, false teachers, false prophets, false shepherds, whatever it is. You know how it is when you're dealing with some people. You know, you go into situations and you ask the Lord, give me an opportunity to share, Lord. Open doors that we could talk about the gospel or whatever it is. And as you go in, some people are, might be open, maybe in the workplace, open to discuss the things of God. They're interested. They want to discuss them. They want to talk about the gospel. You know, they're, they're hungry. Others are angry. They're closed off. They just want to argue. They want to have endless discussions. And, and Jesus is saying here, the reason for judgment isn't to condemn others, but to minister to them, to learn to minister well. And Je I mean, think about Jesus. He dealt with people according to their spiritual needs. With the woman at the well, he spoke about living water. When Nicodemus came and spoke to him, Jesus talked to him about the need to be born again. When the Pharisees made accusations against Jesus and they sought to question him, what did, what did he do with, with them? He just cut the conversation off and he refused to answer. And see, a wise Christian, maturity in Christianity does this. It assesses and it discerns and it asks God for wisdom and it discerns the condition of a person's heart be, before it shares precious truths. <laughs> There's nothing worse than sharing the precious truth of who Jesus is and then having someone trample on it. And sometimes, you know, it, it's tough to, to make that discernment about where someone is at. W where do you want me to lay out the pearls, Lord? Where, where's the spot where I'm dealing with hungry people where the gospel will be received and, and where's the, the part where it'll just be trampled on? And that's why the next invitation from Jesus is sweet. He says this in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. The Apostle James said it this way. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Jesus says this, ask your father. You know, here's, here's the thing. I make mistakes when it comes to my judgments about people. I, I, I know that you do too. You know, sometimes something happens in my life and I'm like, I'm the guy who like wants to, what? You did what? And I want to just come raging out of the corner like a raging bull. You know, sometimes it can happen in family, in personal life, in the workplace, in, in the church place. 
But the reality is this, is when things happen and we're trying to discern and make judgments, we don't know all the details. We're not operating from the place of omniscience. We, we don't know what is in the heart of the person whom we're judging or we're making a decision about. See, only God weighs the heart. Only God can make a perfect judgment about the human heart. And so the invitation of Jesus is this. When you need to make judgments, pray for wisdom. Seek the Father for direction. Think of young Solomon. He knew that as a young king, he did not have the wisdom to lead the people of Israel. He lacked the wisdom to judge, he said. He actually requested specifically that. God, that you will give me wisdom to make wise judgments in the leadership of your people. And so he prayed, and God graciously answered him. And see, if we are to have spiritual discernment to make wise judgments in life, wise judgments in our dealing with people, we need to ask God for his help. We need to seek him for his will. We need to keep knocking on the door. And Jesus promises when we ask, seek, and knock, we will receive. And we will find. And we will find doors open. I mean, sometimes we don't know what God's will is. We don't know what he thinks about a certain situation or what he is planning. And when you don't know what to do, the invitation is this. Ask, seek, knock. The original language actually expresses the, the idea that we're to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, not because God is, is plain hard to get. I don't, I don't think that's the reason why God is doing that, but, but that he is, he is seeking in us to, to, to cultivate a relationship of dependence where we learn to take everything before him. God, I don't know what to do. What should I do? Lead me, Lord. Direct me. And it's in that place of continual asking and seeking and knocking that, that we develop communication skills with the Lord, that we learn to speak to him. And we have our ears tuned to, to hearing the voice of his spirit. Look what Jesus says in verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What does Jesus say? Rest assured. Your father in heaven will give you what you need. You know, you think about your earthly dad, your earthly father, imperfect as he is, Imperfect as he was, when you had needs, maybe he did so grudgingly or whatever it was, but he knew how to give gifts to his children. How much more your heavenly father, he knows what is best and he always does what is right. He's a good father. Would a human father mock a hungry child and say, here's a stone, here you go, have a meal. He wouldn't do that. You know who would do that? Satan though. You think about the temptation of Jesus. What did he offer Jesus? A stone. Here have some bread. Turn this to bread. Would a human father put a snake on his child's plate instead of fish? No way. No way. Of course not. 
So when Jesus tells us to ask and to seek and to knock, we, we have to choose, we have to make a choice in our heart to, to see the goodness of our Father who is in heaven, to, to trust his nature, to trust his intentions towards us. He's not trying to mock us. He's not trying to harm us. He's not out to hurt us. He's seeking to train us, to teach us, to care for us, to show us that he is our provider. And for the citizens of the kingdom, Jesus' Jesus' desire is that 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 heart that the Father has towards us would then be in us towards others. That, That the heart of the Father would be reproduced in our lives. And so Jesus says this in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We call this the golden rule, right? That's what it's called. Lots of your Bibles will have that subtitle there. The golden rule. This is the Everest of ethics, it's called. Also, though, I would say this is a very misunderstood principle because how Jesus says this is different from how a lot of people say this verse. Some hang the hope of salvation on living by this rule. I mean, you may have heard non-believers say, you know, don't judge me as you judge. According to how you judge, you'll be judged. They also drop this one. You know, I, I do not do to others as I would have, don't want them to do to me sort of thing. And they mix it up. See, this rule, the golden rule, won't save you. It's not the sum total of the Bible. And it's not God's plan of redemption for the world. Jesus is God's plan of redemption for the world. This is simply a great truth that Jesus gave to govern our attitudes and actions towards others. See, the golden rule actually existed before the time of Jesus. Many philosophers and religious teachers taught it and used it. But everyone who came before Jesus used the golden rule in a negative form. They said it like this. Do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. Jesus took this golden rule from a negative, uh, passive form and he made it positive and he made it active and he said this. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. Be the father who gives the bread. Be the father who gives uh, the fish. You see, Christianity is not passive Don't do to others as you would not have them do to you. Christianity is active. It says, what do you wish others would do for you? Now do it for them. See, Paul said, for me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. You know, let me ask you, is there something that you wish your neighbor would do for you? I I do. Fix the fence, man. (laughs) Whatever. I don't know. Whatever it is. Maybe that's the very thing that you should do for your neighbor. See, the practice of the golden rule releases the love of God to be manifest through our lives. The love of the Father to be manifest through our lives to others. And it's the the sum of the law and the prophets. It, It is the underlying principle of all morality. Ethics that Jesus establishes in his kingdom. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. See, see, put yourself in their shoes 
and act accordingly, Jesus says. He says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I love uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. I want to read it to you. It says this. Let your eyes look directly forward and your, gri- and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. As Jesus talks about the wide road and the narrow road, uh, Solomon said this. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. You know, when I think about living as a Christian increasingly, I, I feel narrow-minded in this world. I don't know about you. I feel like people look at the Christian faith and they say it's so narrow-minded. It's so small mind. You guys are so, you know, small thinking. <clears throat> the reason why I think that we're, we're in that conflict with the world is, is that we have a different set of values, <laughs> You know, in the Christian faith, we, we value truth. We want to walk on the path of truth. The culture of this world doesn't, it, it values truth, but not, not with the same value of truth that, that, that Christianity holds to. Instead, what, what do they value? They value equality. They value tolerance. They, they value not offending someone. Those, those things are of greater priority than truth for the world. <clears throat> you know, God forbid that you say Jesus is the only way to salvation. <laughs> or God forbid that we, you know, take a biblical definition of sexuality or marriage or whatever it might be. You know, God forbid that Jesus claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they're, they're not leaving because they're angry. They're leaving because they're going to baseball now. Okay. <laughs> I'm just defending you, Jane. I didn't want them to think anything bad of you. She's not narrow-minded. She's walking the straight path. Awesome. God forbid that Jesus claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but, but through me. What? That's so narrow-minded. All roads lead. We're all going up. You know, we're just going up the mountain from different sides. How narrow-minded are you Christians? You know, I like this saying. It's been said, we need to remember that we are to be as narrow-minded as the Lord demands and as broad-minded as he allows. See, this is about this broad path and this narrow path. This is about the road to heaven and the road to hell. And the road to hell is broad and its gate is wide. And Jesus said that many enter this road. It's popular, man. This path is popular. It's crowded. It's crowded with, a, with careless throngs of people that are blinded by this world. It's a road that offers pleasure and possessions and power and satisf- satisfaction of your desires. Do whatever you want. But the thing about the broad road is this, is that as you travel the broad road, it seems to get narrower. I mean, you think about it. There is darkness and there is bondage and there is ruin in the things along the broad path. Not, not destruction as in 
you know, extinction, but destruction is in ruin. You, you ruin your life along the broad path. You, you lose your well-being. You, you, you become a, addicted and a slave and in bondage to, to sin and to the things of this world. <clears throat> the road is broad, but it squeezes you into a life of ruin. The narrow road, on the other hand, is entered through a narrow gate, Jesus said. I think about the entrance of the gate. You know, at the entrance to the gate, there's, there's no posters, you know, advertising all the material benefits of walking this path. You know, no posters promising physical well-being or, or escape from peril or escape from persecution or escape from famine or escape from the sword. No implied promise that you can have the best of this world and the next. No suggestion that you can go on living the same old way and be sure of the promise of heaven. See, you can't, you can't enter through the narrow gate and, and hold hands with this world and be tolerant of the sin that is in your life. The, the world crucified the Savior and the world is no friends of those who would follow after the Savior Jesus. See, the road to heaven is narrow. The gate is narrow, but one of the things that you discover as you walk it is that it's a road that, bar, that broadens. It broadens as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Savior. Where the wide path narrows under the bondage of sin, the narrow path widens under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The narrow path is full of, you know, joy and challenges, intellectual challenges, emotional fulfillment. It's full of opportunities to do things for the Lord. It's a path that leads to life. It's a path that leads to eternal life. See, the narrow road runs from heaven to earth, but as Jesus talks about the broad road, it's a road that leads from earth to hell. But nowhere does the Bible teach there is a road that leads between heaven and hell. There's only one place where the wide, broad road can be inter intersected. The place of the skull. Golgotha. Mount Moriah, where God provided himself a lamb. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we meet Jesus at the cross and we accept him as savior, he, he leads us, he takes us, he lifts us off that wide path leading to destruction onto the narrow path leading to eternal life. The wide, broad path to destruction and the narrow path to eternal life. Which one are you traveling on? You know, many have this easy version of Christianity that costs nothing. It's a Christianity that makes no demands on them, no expectations. There are many who claim they've left the wide road that leads to destruction and they say that they they, they trust in Jesus, but they've never left behind the appetites and the associations that they had when they were on the broad road. See, if you enter through the narrow gate, it will cost you something. It will cost you. 
I mean, let me ask those who have entered that gate. What did it cost you to follow Jesus? What did your confession of Christ cost you? Not cost in the sense that you purchased it. We know this. Salvation can't be purchased. Salvation is purchased by Jesus Christ. He gives it as a gift. The gift of eternal life. No, I mean cost in the sense of loss. What did you give up to follow Jesus? What sin did you leave behind to enter through that narrow gate and to follow him? Because Jesus says something amazing here in verse 15. You look at with me. He says this. Beware. Beware. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What's he talking about here? Us learning to make judgments. Not in condemnation, but in wisdom. See, false prophets are those who pretend to be sheep, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They have the outward appearance of being genuine. They say the right things. They appear to do the right things. But the ultimate test of falsehood, the ultimate test of the false prophet is, is not the attractiveness of their personality. It's not the things that they say. It's maybe not the number of their followers, but it's the doctrine and the, the, the manner of their lives, the fruits. And he says in the false, the fruit of the Spirit is lacking. Look at verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Really simple. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. See, true faith in Jesus Christ changes a life. It transforms a life. It begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit to the glory of God in a life. And a simple thing Jesus explains to us this morning healthy trees produce good fruit disease trees bear bad fruit what he's saying is this it's a, it's a great principle the fruit exposes the root you don't have to dig up the tree and get below the surface to see what's going on underneath the ground just examine the fruit Look at what is on the end of the branch and it will tell you about the health of what lies below the surface. The false prophet, I think of them, they, they, they magnify themselves rather than Jesus. Paul warned the church in Ephesus that false teachers would come in amongst them, that they would arise from within them, that they would seek to draw people after themselves. And their purpose was not to Edify the body, but to exploit people, you know? I always think about this. You know, the, the, the false prophet wants to get into your pocketbook, man. Into your wallet. They're not so concerned about feeding you as they are fleecing you. And here's the devastating reality for 
many people that, that, that those who follow false prophets, those who follow false doctrines, will not experience a changed life. Their own lives will not change. You see, the question is this. Did your decision for Jesus change your life? What changed? And Jesus gives a grim warning here that we should heed. Uh, he's, <coughs> he's about to go into this. A warning of false profession. Beware of false profession, he says. From, from false prophets to false profession. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, what Jesus is saying here is that Mere outward profession of faith is useless. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not all that call themselves Christians will be saved. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles? See, actually, some use those things as tests of the genuine they say genuine Christianity looks like this. Do, do, do. But Jesus said you can do all those things and not know him. These are not tests of what genuine Christianity looks like. See, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's magicians perform miracles. Balaam prophesied. You know, Saul prophesied and the people said, Isn't he, is he among the prophets? See, if the test is not saying, Lord, Lord, if the test is not casting out demons, if the test is not prophesying, you know, if, if the test is not doing mighty works, then I wonder, what is the test of true faith? How do you weigh true faith? How do you look at the fruit and say, is this the real deal? Is this genuine? Uh, the test is not... But Jesus, I, val I valued equality. I said you could go up any side of the mountain. What is the test of true faith? If, if I'm to pull the log out of my eye so that I can help others with the splinter in their eye, if I'm to pull the log out of my eye so that when God calls everything into judgment and I'm found to be true, what is the true test of faith? Well, the application comes in a familiar parable that you're very familiar with that Jesus is going to tell us of the wise and the foolish builder. Look at it in verse 24. <clears throat> the test of true faith. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had not been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. The great, great was the fall of it. 
See, the true test doesn't come until the rain begins to fall. The flood rises. The wind blows. When the house gets pounded. Has your house ever been pounded? What is the true test of faith? See, Jesus says this. The true test of faith is obedience to the word of God. And he speaks of two men building their houses. Both use the same material. Same building stuff. But in the storm, one man's house stands and the other man's house falls. It collapses. And the difference is the foundation. One built on the rock and the other built on the sand. See, Jesus is saying this. Be careful where you build. Build on something that will last. Build on the rock. <clears throat> who is the one who builds on the rock? It's the person who hears the word, of Lord, the word of the Lord and does it. He does the words of God. And who is the person who builds on the sand? They're the person who hears the word of the Lord and doesn't do them. That's the amazing thing about this parable. Both heard the word of God. The wise and the foolish builder both heard the word of God. One chose to do the word and one chose not to do the word. You know, one of the dangers of sitting in church for years and years and years, one of the dangers of, of loving the word of God and sitting in church is that we can begin to equate hearing with doing. Well, I listened to the preacher, man. I went to church every Sunday. What do you mean, Lord, Lord? Didn't I go to church? You know, you hear something about Jesus and maybe in this text, his comments on judgment and agreement, you say, hey man, yes, we shouldn't judge. And then I leave this place and I never put into practice what Jesus says. I continue to look at others with a condemning, a self-righteous, critical heart. And the warning from Jesus is this, that it's foolish to listen to his words and not do it. Your house will collapse if you listen to his word and not put it into practice. See, words, listening cannot be substituted for doing. I sound like, my, like I'm a dad this morning talking to my kids. Can you go do this? <laughs> Yeah, dad, yeah, 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 yeah. Look at man. Do it. <laughs> Get up and do it. What's the G.I. Joe saying? I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of the G.I. Joe saying in my mind right now. Come on, Eli, what is it? No, not real American hero. The other one. Yeah, they've got a saying about doing it anyways. Look it. Yo, Joe, you're close. It's gone. It slipped my mind. Anyways, listen. Words cannot substitute for obedience. When the master speaks, a servant gets up and he does what his master tells him to do. And religious works cannot be substituted for obedience. You know, there is no assurance of salvation in casting out demons in preaching for that matter. There is no assurance of salvation in performing miracles. And preaching the gospel. Just because you, you hear the word of God and you agree with it. Does not mean that you've necessarily put it into practice. 
See, what Jesus is saying is this. You got to be honest with the log that's in your eye. When you hear the word of God, you've got to do it. It's got to be put into practice. And the wise man not only hears the words of God, but he puts them into practice. See, Jesus is saying this. Obedience is the test of true faith. Obedience is the heart of love. Jesus says, if you love me, then you'll do what I say. And those who have trusted Jesus, those who have proved their faith by obedience, will have nothing to fear when the storm comes. Their house is founded on the rock and it will stand. Those who have, on the other hand, those who have professed faith in Christ but have not obeyed will be condemned, it says. You know, the similar thing about these two people is this, is that the storm came. The storm came. For both the wise and the foolish builder, the storm comes. In my mind, as I was studying this for me in a fresh way, it was like, wow. You know, the day of judgment. Boy, that's the ultimate day of storm. When your foundation will be exposed. Have we paid the price for our profession of faith in Christ Jesus? Are our lives producing godly fruits? See, true faith in Jesus will not only withstand the test of this life, but it will withstand the test of the final judgment. You know, I think about this sermon in its entirety, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's just so loaded with so much great stuff. The constitution of the kingdom, the manifesto of Jesus. And see, the wise take the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount and they take them at face value and they they begin to build them into their lives. They say, this is building blocks. I'm putting these things into my life. I want my life to look like what Jesus is saying here. And they build their lives on the word of Jesus. These words, the constitution of the kingdom, becomes the constitution of their own lives. They say it's not just Jesus' manifesto, it becomes my manifesto. I'm going to live by his words and put them into practice. And it becomes their life manifesto. Foolish people hear these words, they're familiar with these words, and they discount them, and they don't live by them, and they don't build them into their lives. You know, as I just kind of wrap up this ser- series and the, the small series and the big series on the Sermon on the Mount, I would say this to you. Don't let the applications of the Sermon on the Mount e- evade your life. Obedience to the teaching of Jesus is the true test of genuine faith. The storms will come. I think about Peter and Rebecca. They are in the midst of a storm I can't imagine and I don't ever want to have part of. They're in the midst of a storm. Rain will come. Floods will rise. The wind will blow. Your house will be tested. What you build will be tested. The question is, what are you founded on? The wise man Builds his house on the rock. Verse 28, it says this. And when Jesus finished saying these things, 
the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Don't you wish you could be there? I, I'm astonished at the words of Jesus. I wish that I could be there. See that. And when he finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. One who had authority. Kingdom authority. What are you building on? You know, I would ask you this morning this is, maybe you haven't made the move from the broad path onto the narrow path. Jesus can meet you to make that intersection this morning.